The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. Learn who rules over you. Simply find out that you are not allowed to criticize. You are listening to ACH. I'm Andy, your host. Today's time for our Thursday show with Dr. Peter Hammonds. So let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with us? I am with you. Yes. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And folks, I just got uh, told what the title of today's presentation is going to be, and I'm really excited about it. Many of you know I'm one of these people that will still go on websites like beforeitsnews.com, which I complain about heartily on my Saturday show with all the disinfo on there, but you're always hoping to find the sort of things you find on HalTurnerRadioShow.com, predictions for the future, inside intel, etc., when we see all this saber-rattling going on. And Peter's presentation today is entitled The Real Story... The real story behind the coming war with China. That's the coming war with China. So I'm already intrigued. Peter, where would you like to start us off today? Well, Andrew, it's extraordinary how many headlines we've been treated to just in the last year of what will war with China look like? How war with China will begin? The coming war with China. Is war with China inevitable? China will go to war with the world in the next six years, experts say. So there's all kinds of experts warning that war with communist China is not only inevitable, but it's imminent. But these are the same people who just a few years ago and sometimes a few months ago were singing the praise of Xi Jinping and extolling the glorious um, virtues of uh, red China and all of that and what an example they are. And we've still got criminals like uh, Justin Trudeau who are full of praise for China, how much he admires their basic dictatorship, quote-unquote, how they can turn the economy around on a dime, and um, just how efficient countries like China are, which obviously appeals to people with a totalitarian mindset. And so you've got people who have been praising China now saying that war with China is inevitable. Now, uh, I've got a different take on this because in one sense, while the title is The Coming War with China, of course, when we think of war, we're thinking in terms of tanks and aircraft and ships and missiles and bombs and, and uh, full-on fighting, which is also probably inevitable and maybe even imminent. But I would say that the war with China is not just coming, it's already here. Uh, the Chinese have a philosophy of warfare called unrestricted warfare and warfare by the means. Basically, it's total warfare. They have been engaged in political war, economic war, social war, and psychological war 
using trade and investment, theft, espionage, infiltration, bribery, propaganda, intimidation, drugs, organized crime, social turmoil, cyber attacks, social media, biological agents like viral pandemics just in COVID, to destabilize the West, to weaken the West, to hollow out the industrial manufacturing base of the West. They're in a total war um, doctrine anyway. And Mao Tung, uh, whose little red book gives us a lot of insights to how they think, uh, spoke of ta-ta-tan-tan, fight, fight, talk, talk. And Mao Tung used this campaign against the anti-communist nationalist government of General Chiang Kai-shek during 1930s and 1940s. Keep talking, keep negotiating, keep getting concessions until he's strong enough to strike a deadly bow. Now, Chiang Kai-shek saw through the deceptions, but he was forced by the communist traitors within the Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Truman administrations to continually acquiesce and partner with the communists. And uh, not just once, but four times, and each time proved to be a deadly trap. And I've got a book on my shelf on Allied Betrayed uh, China, on how the United States of America betrayed nationalist China at the hands of the communist thugs. And this is the work of people like Joe Stilwell, George Marshall, Harry Hopkins, Harry Dexter White, Dean Asherson, and uh, the people of the State Department, Wall Street, big tech, big media, big pharma, universities, think tanks, the Council of Foreign Relations, World Economic Forum, Trilateral Commission, the Club of Rome, the Aspen Institute, they were heavily involved in betraying uh, nationalist China at the hands of communist China. And Professor Anthony Sutton uh, of the um, Hoover Institute uh, published Western Technology and Soviet Economic Development, 1917 to 1964, where he documented meticulously the immense decades-long transfer of economic and technological assistance from the United States, not only to the communist regimes of Lenin and Stalin and Khrushchev, but also of Mao Zedong and in China. And America under Clinton did even greater technology transfers to build up China to be such a phenomenal economic and military threat. Just about everything that China's got to threaten us with, they've been funded, aided, and made technologically possible by traitors from the West. And as we will know, the present Democratic Party of America and the American White House is pretty much a client of the Communist Party of China. And the whole COVID-19 lockdown lunacy, COVID cult, salvation by vaccination, masquerade madness was organized from Red China. And I think it's well documented and proven by now that uh, uh, the greatest economic disaster to hit the Western world uh, was actually engineered in China in a laboratory in Wuhan. And even the response to this pandemic was learned from the Communist Party of China. So we really are facing a war with them already. And it's extraordinary how much they have already done to attack us. Now, just one example from personal experience. I was a participant in the largest missions conference in history, the Lausanne 3 or Cape Town 2010 Congress on World Evangelization. In 2010 in Cape Town, we had 4,200 missions participants from 197 countries in the world. Another 100,000 were receiving live streaming of the conference through 700 global link sites in 95 countries. This is a phenomenal operation. Not one single one of the 300 Chinese delegates was able to make it because the Communist Party of uh, China saw to it they mobilized a few thousand of their secret police just to restrain the participants 
uh, in the Luzon Congress coming from China and to prevent them uh, from boarding aircraft. Many Chinese Christian leaders had their passports confiscated, some were detained, others had the luggage seized, many were subject to massive inter interrogations, but not one single person from mainland China was able to attend the largest missions conference in history at the Luzon 3 or Cape Town 2010. And that, they did the same thing for the Luzon 2 in the Philippines uh, more than 10 years before, where they prevented every Chinese person attending. But more than that happened. While we were at the Cape Town 2010 Missions Conference, or Congress and World Evangelization, to give its full title, we were hit by the most massive malicious cyber attack ever seen. Cyber war was unleashed on us, and uh, I was there when the entire system crashed. This is the Cape Town International Conference Center. Everything crashed. The 700 global links to 100,000 other people in satellites, uh, venues all over the world, 95 countries who are meant to participate to this World Congress in evangelism. Um, it came to a skiddy halt. Our entire telecommunication system crashed. And I was at the press briefing when Mr. Vijayam uh, announced that it was um, millions of malicious external hits coming from several locations had brought a virus into the Cape Town International Conference Center and had destroyed the um, the ability for us to have this link up with 700 global link sites in 95 countries where another 100,000 participants were meant to be joining in. And um, he uh, said that, um, you know, it was obviously external, it was malicious hits, it was cyber warfare. And uh, so press people there asked, you know, where's this coming from? And he said he could not say. So afterwards, I sidled up next to the man to say, uh, did this come from China? And he said, yes, um, but that mustn't be reported. Well, I wrote an article on this, um, uh, clearly identifying uh, Red China behind the Missions Congress targeted by massive cyber attack. And that was published around the world. Um, they were quite angry to know that somebody had leaked that because they didn't want China embarrassed. Uh, although, I don't know what the point is, they declare war on you, they wage cyber war on you, and you're not meant to even report on it. Um, that just shows the kind of spineless cowardice that you can see even in church congress leadership. But uh, the Chinese travel ban on their delegates coming, they made it quite clear. Who had the capability of unleashing cyber war? They even said at the time, this is greatest cyber war ever seen in history, much more than the Americans unleashed on Iraq during the Gulf War I, uh, which shut down so much of the security systems of um, Iraq, uh, so that America could get their missiles coming in. But so the enemy is within the gates without a doubt already. China's already waging war against the West, and a huge amount of the drug trade is organized by the Chinese um, intelligence services. They are organizing a massive amount of bringing drugs to undermine the use of the West so that their military will be weaker, that they will not be able to resist as well. And so the drug trafficking is not just run by criminal cartels, but in many cases coordinated by uh, intelligence services of Red China. And Red China is behind a lot of the criminal gangs and undermining. They do espionage um, on uh, businesses and technology theft on a colossal absolutely wholesale scale. They're behind a lot of organized crime. They're buying up massive amounts of media. They control lots of ports around the world. They control a lot of media. They control a lot of Hollywood. So much so that when a Hollywood film comes out that might have something negative to China, they often are able to manipulate. For example, 
Some of you may have seen the film years ago called Red Dawn that came out in the early 1980s where Russia invades America. Well, there was a new rebooted Red Dawn brought out a few years ago where it was meant to be China invading Russia, uh, America. And uh, in fact, there was such protest from China that in the end, the film studio, at the cost of another million dollars, changed all, uh, after the film had been finished, changed, and this required incredible digital editing, all the uh, patches identifying uh, Red China amongst the troops invading to North Korea. And they changed it very implausibly to Red, to North Korea invades the uh, United States and takes over most of continental USA. Uh, so the Americans are now fighting a guerrilla warfare in their own country. So that, that was, they could change a whole film that way. There was also tremendous pressure on Top Gun when it first came out to have a Taiwanese flag on the um, flight jacket of the main character, Maverick, um, to have that uh, deleted and blocked out because they didn't want a flag of, of nationalist China or free China, Republic of China, Taiwan. And so that flag had to be digitally blocked out. And there's so many cases where they interfere in, in even entertainment. They're concerned down to that kind of petty level of a flag on a jacket. So a red child has got a huge amount of influence. And you can see they control the White House. They control the Biden White House. They control a huge amount of the Democratic Party. Um, Bill Clinton um, authorized the transfer of crucial guided missile technology to China, which ensured that China could enter um, into the atomic race and um, also World Trade Organization he authorized that coming about. Now, according to the International Atomic Energy Agency, China's 19 new nuclear plants under construction, more than double their next competitor, which is India, who's building eight new plants. Um, tied for third place in the world is Russia and Turkey, who both have four nuclear plants under construction. But the United States, who pioneered nuclear energy, was once undisputed leader in the field, is only building two new nuclear plants. And that's after a lot of delay as well. Germany is actually closing down nuclear plants, even while the people are um, scavenging in the woods to uh, bring um, wood for them to make fires at home and coal and uh, all kinds of um, paraffin and other uh, fuels in Germany and Austria are at sky-high record prices. So interesting how China's got no problem leading the world in so much of this technology, which they've stolen from the West, mind you, or been given by uh, criminals like Bill Clinton or sold by uh, Biden. Interestingly enough, if you're just talking about solar energy and green energy, most of the world's alternative or green energy um, materials like wind turbines and batteries come from red China. So when people invest in green energy, in many cases, they're building up the economy of China, who's the biggest pollutant in the world, by the way. But uh, still, uh, let me get to the actual shooting war part of red China, even though I recognize we're already in a uh, warfare by other means, total warfare, unrestricted warfare, where they're really are involved in economic, social, psychological warfare against the West and doing massive amount of bribery and propaganda and uh, drug infiltration and even cyber attacks on missions conferences, for goodness sakes. Do you think Red China has such an interest to shut down a missions conference with cyber war, revealing to the world their cyber war capabilities? So that was extraordinary. But um, just to think in terms of um, 
potential shooting war with Taiwan. The situation is that when China, nationalist China, was betrayed by the West, by the Harry Truman government and the Democrat-controlled Congress in America, who betrayed American ally Chiang Kai-shek uh, into the hands of Mao Zedong's criminal Marxist thugs, the people of, of nationalist China fled to the island of Formosa, or Taiwan, where they set up the Republic of China uh, government. So Free China or Red or um, Nationalist China is using the Taiwan Island as their base of operations, whereas uh, the Communist or Red China, the People's Republic of China, uh, they are Red China. They control the mainland right now. So since then, um, effectively, Taiwan's been independent. It's seceded from uh, mainland Nationalist China, in fact, although Red China has been waging a campaign for it not to be accepted as de jure, and they campaign to get um, the permanent member seat on the Security Council taken away from the Republic of China and handed to uh, Red China. Uh, and that betrayal was organized by the Soviet Union and the United States, who stole from Nationalist China the permanent member status on the Security Council and gave it to these communist thugs who are the world leaders in mass murder. Mao Zedong is in the Guinea's Book of Records as the biggest mass murderer in the history of the world. Something like 68 million people, Chinese people killed in the Great Leap Forward and the uh, um, Red Terror organized by the communists um, in the Cultural Revolution 1960s. So uh, the communist thugs in China are without a doubt the worst governments in the world in terms of human rights and totalitarian oppression and lack of freedom. And yet they were given a permanent member status on the Security Council of the United Nations. And uh, and Nationalist China, which is one of the freest countries in the world, and certainly one of the freest countries in Asia, and one of the most incredible productive economies in the whole of Asia, um, they were denied diplomatic recognition by a very cowardly West, uh, who has kowtowed to Red China's demand that nobody recognize free China as as an independent country, uh, but that uh, they are de facto, they're de jure, still under the communist uh, Chinese party's uh, control, which of course, practically they're not. Well, um, last year, General Mike Miniham, a four-star general who heads the Air Force Air Mobility Command, sent a memo to his officers predicting war with China before 2025 and instructing them to report back on the steps they would take to ensure that they will be ready to fight inside the first island chain. That's those islands on the outskirts of free China, uh, but are very close to mainland China. So he advised the men under his command to make sure their emergency contact information and legal affairs were up to date, including their wills, you know, things like that, pretty um, significant, saying, I hope I'm wrong, but my gut tells me that we will fight in 2025. Now, this memorandum did get leaked, and uh, interestingly, the Biden Defense Department took a totally different response and said that's not representative of the Defense Department's view on China. So there's contradictory positions, but um, many people have thought, well, war between China and Taiwan is something like 10 or 15 years in the future. But... Um, China's dictator Xi Jinping has conducted almost daily acts of military aggression against Taiwan. 
flying their planes closer and closer to Taiwan, sometimes even over Taiwan, and uh, uh, firing uh, missiles and rockets which either which either fall short of Taiwan or go over Taiwan to crash into the ocean on the other side. But, you know, basically keeping the military jumping in, in Taiwan to be able to respond to potential threats and doing massive military buildup and maneuvers and including storming beaches and doing all kinds of uh, drills and preparations which can only be intended to intimidate and to prepare their own forces for a sort of massive D-Day type landing invasion of of uh, Formosa or Taiwan, Free China. And uh, the Communist Party of China continually says that they are going to take Taiwan and integrate Taiwan just as they did Hong Kong. And uh, the history of Taiwan and China is pretty long and complicated, but um, Taiwan has become one of the world's freest, most prosperous, most successful states. And for more than 40 years, um, United States and the Western world have um, been ambiguous about Taiwan's sovereignty. To placate communist China, they've enjoyed trade and investments in Taiwan, but also trade and investments in Red China, and uh, refused to give full diplomatic uh, recognition of Taiwan. Now, South Africa, when we were a free and independent nation, we had full diplomatic relations with Republic of China or Free China on Taiwan. And uh, friends of mine visited there, and I know the man who is our um, ambassador there, and uh, P.W. Bortz's daughter visited as well, and we had a, a very good relationship. Sometimes Republic of China troops would come up to the border and do joint uh, uh, drills and maneuvers with the South African Defense Force. Uh, we had a high regard for the Republic of China forces. They were very professional, extremely dedicated, very high standard of uh, training and highly motivated, extremely anti-communist. And so we were also impressed by the large amounts of Christians amongst the Taiwanese forces or Republic of China army that Christianity obviously has got a very strong base on uh, Taiwan. And not only that, but um, I found it one of the cheapest places in the world to get good quality printing of Bibles. So Many of the Bibles we've had printed to smuggle into Sudan were actually printed in Taiwan or Singapore or, or South Korea because in the whole world, the best quality printing and the most cost-effective can be done in countries like Taiwan. They they can print at such a rate that I can get five times more Bibles when I get them printed in Taiwan than if I have them printed in Kenya, for example. Even though I'm, I'm smuggling them into Sudan in, in Africa, you would think Kenya is the place to get your Bibles printed because it's right next door. But even allowing for the cost of transport, Taiwan can print them better, higher quality, and um, much cheaper to the extent of one-fifth the cost that Kenya will quote me for printing Bibles. So many countries in the West want to have trade with Taiwan, which is one of the most advanced computer supply places in the world, especially microchips. And uh, yet they don't want to give them full diplomatic recognition so as not to offend Red China. And so you've got these Western countries like America trying to do trade with both Taiwan, who's a very free country, and with Red China, which is one of the most oppressive countries politically on the planet. So the interesting thing is that communist China was initially quite um, backward and uh, 
It's only Western aid and trade and technology transfers that have built up this uh, mess of communist China to the position where they're actually a military threat to us. Now, the Center for Strategic and International Studies has done a wargaming uh, analysis of various invasion scenarios where Red China is invading Taiwan. And they concluded that a Chinese invasion of Taiwan would probably fail but not before inflicting huge casualties on American forces in the region and on Taiwan itself. And uh, the Center for Strategic and International Studies came to the conclusion that it would be absolutely essential to have some international allies and support for Taiwan to stand. So Taiwan can stand, but they need some allies like Japan and America to stand with them. Now, the island of Taiwan itself is a natural fortress. The western coast, the side-facing mainland China, has virtually no beaches. It's got lots of very rocky, um, mountainous um, coastline, making it virtually impossible for uh, a kind of amphibious landing. Few stretches of sandy beaches that do exist are heavily defended and would present extremely difficult obstacles for any successful landing troops and material. So uh, when you look at it, Taiwan is no pushover and... Uh, it's not exactly easy to access. Now, even the remote east coast is mostly cliffs and steep tropical slopes plunging into the Pacific Ocean. And the seas around Taiwan are extremely rough and difficult. And there's only two feasible invasion windows available each year. And that would be April, May and October would be the only times that any amphibious force would have any hope of landing troops on the coast because of the stormy seas around us. And that's April, May, and October. So those are the only possible times of the year when invasion could take place. The interior of the island of, of uh, Taiwan is very mountainous and heavily forested. It would be extremely difficult for any invading army to control. And that's one of the reasons that when the Americans were fighting against Japan in the Second World War, they completely avoided Formosa, or what today is called Taiwan. And uh, they looked at the 40,000 Japanese troops defending um, Formosa at that time, and they concluded they would need at least 400,000 Marines to successfully take uh, the island. And so the Americans opted to bypass uh, Formosa entirely because it was just unattainable. The cost of lives uh, would be too high and so on. Well, by modern estimates, uh, the Center for Strategic uh, Studies concludes that Red China would need a force of at least one million men or half the entire Chinese military to attempt an invasion of Taiwan. Now, from the Chinese perspective, invading Taiwan with any hope of success would require an enormous amount of ships, planes, tanks, and men. And large numbers of Chinese military assets are required everywhere to fend off China's many hostile neighbors, especially India, because China has stolen land from all of its neighbors including Pakistan and India and Nepal. And so if they just um, if they have to relocate their forces uh, towards fighting Taiwan, it will leave those areas open for um, Taiwan, Nepal, Pakistan, so on, to regain a lot of what's been stolen from them. So it's unlikely that China would be able to pull down its forces there, especially Tibet, because they invaded and took over the whole of Tibet. And Tibet... Um, has a lot of resistance and there's many who would like uh, Tibet to be free. You know, think Dalai Lama and all of that, and he's got a lot of friends. So China cannot compromise their security in these areas which they've invaded and are oppressing, 
and occupying. So they've got a few problems. And they've got a very long border with India. And uh, they have encroached on Indian territory a lot in the past, and India's pretty keen to take it back. A Tibetan War of Independence um, would also be very much in the um, offing if they were in any way to be distracted with the war with Taiwan, especially if it took a lot of time. So the amount of armaments actually available for deployments against Taiwan would be substantially less. So, for example, China now has 1,600 fighter jets, whereas Taiwan only has 400 fighter jets. But Taiwan can be 100% committed because they're depending on their own homeland and they concentrate in folks and know where the enemy is coming from. Whereas uh, China has a lot of territory to protect and have got quite a lot of hostile neighbors who they've aggravated and who are wanting to take back territory that China's stolen. So China would probably only have half of their uh, military available to focus on Taiwan. The other half would be needed to hold the fort or they would have wars on two fronts very quickly or even three. So all the uh, advantage of two to one sounds still very formidable. Uh, there's a tremendous superiority of Taiwan's aircraft and munitions because uh, you have to consider the quality here. And uh, China's army and navy is untested. They have not had a major war and they have not had a successful modern war um, where they can learn how the equipment works well and uh, you know, no plan survives contact with the enemy. And uh, it's amazing how many things go wrong in war and how much equipment fails and so on. So China may have the world's largest navy officially, but that includes very small little cutters and small craft. So China still only has two aircraft carriers and they're very old, old outdated ones. There's a third more modern carrier that's being completed but not yet deployed. They have nine nuclear submarines, and uh, neither of these, of course, are very helpful in amphibious operations, but still. Now, bearing in mind that uh, while the Americans and the Japanese have been involved in complex naval battles involving carrier groups, uh, and, you know, for example, Battle of Midway is an example, China has no actual experience in any naval warfare, and uh, therefore, they lack the institutional experience and uh, all the practical benefits that come from the fact that your army or navy has been involved in, in the kind of conflicts they're talking about. So they are an untested army. And China's got huge logistical problems. How do you transport the hundreds of thousands of men and the thousands of tanks across 90 miles of Taiwan Strait, land them on Taiwan? And you can't have a kind of surprise D-Day type invasion these days, not with satellites and all the rest of it. Taiwan and the United States would have weeks of warning before an invasion actually came and could prepare. And China has nowhere near the hundreds of transport ships needed to carry a million man force across that strait. You just think of the huge amount of effort and ingenuity and industry involved in ma manufacturing and mobilizing the D-Day landings and uh, those had several chances of completely failing as well, um, you know, especially considering that the German army was mostly fighting on the Eastern Front in Russia and had been for years. And Germany did not have their best forces or units stationed on the Western Front. They were very distracted with the Eastern Front, uh, where they had suffered 95% of all the casualties. So 
the D-Day landings uh, would have been absolutely impossible to succeed if the whole German army had been available to focus on responding. And uh, here, of course, Taiwan can put the entire military's focus on resisting these landings. They don't have a second front uh, that they need to worry about, whereas China might easily have a second front if they're not careful. They've made enemies of virtually all their neighbors. Now, um, surprise would not really be possible. And the other thing is, how are they going to respond, considering America has now publicly stated that they would defend Taiwan four times, the American president has said in recent uh, months that the United States would defend Taiwan in the event of an invasion attempt. And so you cannot ignore that fact. So what might China do about that? Well, they might try a preemptive strike against American assets in the area like Okinawa and Guam, try and knock out American forces in the area with a preemptive strike, which of course was done by the Japanese once at Pearl Harbor and in the Philippines, but the Chinese should be aware of what happened to Japan in the long run. And an unprovoked attack, surprise attack on US bases would unite America in fighting them as never before. And so that might not be a very wise move to try a preemptive strike on American assets in the area that would guarantee America's involvement uh, to the death. And uh, the Chinese um, have also used up a lot of their uh, capital worldwide in terms of public relations because many people around the world don't have that much goodwill towards China thanks to the COVID pandemic and the tissue of lies and continuous hostile rhetoric, um, a lot of dishonest business and trade practice. I can tell you throughout Africa, there's a lot of people very fed up with China raping our coasts. Uh, the trawlers, the uh, destroying whole forests, uh, the insatiable appetites of Red China for everything in Africa, not just our our wood uh, and our coal and our diamonds and gold and things like that, but ivory and rhino horn and how they lead so much of the poaching campaigns. So all over the place, a lot of hostility to China, how they treat people on the ground, uh, the arrogance, um, uh, the um, blatant racism, the hostility uh, towards um, our people and towards freedom, uh, the lack of respect for human rights. And many people know how they persecuted the church back in China. And the Muslims are well aware how Muslims are mistreated in China too. So all over Africa, I find there's very little goodwill towards China, even though they've got a lot of money, um, uh, they don't have much respect. So a frontal assault invasion on Taiwan would seem to be a lose-lose proposition for China because the Taiwanese have a very, very dedicated and highly professional defense force, extremely uh, good equipment and a very high level of professionalism and dedication. And uh, they would face the fight of their life against the uh, Republic of China or Free China Taiwanese forces. And it's highly unlikely they would succeed in the invasion of this fortress island. And... Uh, what is more likely, perhaps, is that they may try and take some of the outlying islands because there's some small islands like Komoi and Patsu near the Chinese coast, and there's a tiny Pratis Island in the South China Sea. And there are some islands that they may try and take them quickly because they're closer to the Chinese mainland that several thousand um, airborne troops and under cover of heavy bombardment might be able to seize a couple of these islands, maybe. At these smaller operation scenarios, um, 
while difficult, are potentially feasible, uh, like the Pengu Islands in the middle of the strait. And these would have the effect of allowing the Chinese to present the United States with a fate to complete that they've acquired some territory closer to Taiwan that would help them in forward staging for late invasion and give Xi Jinping and the Communist Party a bit of legitimacy and some victory to um, throw to the population as a propaganda coup. Um, but mind you, you think how the Argentinian government did that after taking the Falkland Islands, which they thought was so far away from England, and uh, Margaret Thatcher wouldn't be able to get them back. And, uh, well, things don't always work out the way that the invaders planned. And uh, that certainly didn't seem to help the uh, governments of Argentina. They got thrown out by the people when they failed. So this would be a bit of a risk by Xi Jinping as well, because if they fail in these things, uh, they could find themselves extremely unpopular and ousted in some kind of coup. So it would be, though, very characteristically Chinese to try a salami slicing, nimbling away at little piece of territory while committing uh, no major overt aggressive action to trigger an all-out war. They've used the strategy against India, Nepal, and Bhutan, the Himalayas, and they keep seizing different bits of territory and with Pakistan. So it's quite likely that they may try this as their measure to test the waters and try out their people. Can they just seize some of these outlying islands? Now, of course, Taiwan's well aware of this, and they've really beefed up their security at these places, and they are very alert. So it's um, it's not for sure that they could win, but they might try some kind of very quick blitzkrieg type lightning strike um, to get some of these outlying islands. Uh, but make no mistake, Taiwan would fight back with all that they've got. And the Taiwanese recognize that the best place to fight the enemy is furthest away from your homelands. You know, and so they see these these islands off the coast as uh, the front line of the battle. Now, there would also be, if the Chinese tried to take islands like the Pengu Islands, this is large civilian populations. They've got towns and power infrastructure. If you invaded a place like Pengu Islands, there would be civilian casualties, and that would also require repression afterwards, as the communists always do, which would be a very negative public relations a disaster for the communists. And they do still need a bit of that because they are very reliant on trade with the world to make them so rich. Because right now, if you try to buy any toy in Disneyland, it's made in Red China. If you get any toy at McDonald's, it's made in Red China. Red China needs the West. Even if you want to buy an American flag in America, it's probably made in China. Um, American postcards also, in many cases. Sorry to say, incredibly, even some Bibles, although they're very, very small print Bibles and very low quality, but there are Bibles made in China, which are being sold in the West. So amazing. We've got to smuggle Bibles into China, but they produce some Bibles themselves, although they are such small type that it's very hard to even read. But they work for people who don't care where their Bibles are read or not, but just want a quantity. So if you want to buy the cheapest Bibles in the world, China will offer you English Bibles, of course, not in Chinese language. And uh, But they're the smallest type, the worst quality paper, and the binding's not very good. But if you just want quantity, say, you know, we printed so many thousands of Bibles or whatever, um, the Chinese can offer that the cheapest. They're not very user-friendly, but still. Now, the next question is, what chance does China have of winning a war if they're fighting Taiwan or the United States or Japan, for that matter? Um, and there's an important point that everybody needs to consider, and that is, if you've ever purchased some Chinese-made product, you're aware that the quality is very poor. 
In fact, much of the things break down pretty quickly. Even unsophisticated things like toys are normally broken uh, between the toy store and home uh, before they can even get deployed by your grandchildren. So uh, the quality of things made by China is very, very poor. And well, you look at the facts, facts and the numbers, China has a phenomenally large military and they've got a nuclear stockpile of 200 to 400 warheads. They've got 60 operational intercontinental ballistic missiles. But there's questions, are they a paper tiger or a paper dragon? Because the things that China makes are notoriously poor quality. And when it comes to warfare and you are facing extremes, extremes of heat, extremes of uh, cold, extremes of of, well, uh, incoming fire. If the enemy's in range, you're also in range. And the problem with a lot of military equipment is a lot of it fails. And the amount of, you just take the First World War, the British Army documented that more than 10%, sometimes up to 20% of the artillery shells failed to explode. And there's still a problem in um, Belgium to this day. Belgium is still finding unexploded ordnance from the British Expeditionary Force. Um, 70, 80, 90 years after the events. And uh, there's a huge amount of failure, even of, of uh, countries uh, that um, are very advanced. When it comes to warfare, um, you want equipment that's usable. So China might have some uh, fighter jets, but how effective are they at extremes of speed and pressure and under the uh, pressures of warfare and under fire? How well are they going to do? How good are their guidance systems? Would the intercontinental ballistic missiles even be able to reach America? Could they hit a target uh, that has been aimed for? Um, how effective would the electronics be? Because we know that things that we get from China, almost everything China has is stolen technology. Yes, they can copy and rip off our computers, cell phones, and various applications, but they don't necessarily understand how these modern systems integrate with one another and have not made them as durable, um, how uh, effective are things that you've got to keep replacing? Now, you can copy blueprints and designs and knock off things that you have been able to copy from others and reverse engineer, but what about all the technology and the studies and how it, how it responds under resistance to heat or cold or water? How flexible? Um, what is its real strength, um, its durability? And how reliable will it be under the most adverse circumstances, which is what we need to test for our warfare weapons. I remember during the Cold War, uh, South African Army had the advantage of being involved in a hot war uh, with the best that the Soviets had to offer. So we were in Angola and we could test our 155 millimeter howitzers, um, the G5s and G6s against the Soviets. And they were so advanced and we were able to battle test our weapon systems. And uh, we came up with some very advanced weapon systems that even to this day are so reliable that people from outside are seeking to purchase from us. We just had a bit of a scenario here in South Africa where the American ambassador is accusing South Africa of having loaded munitions onto a Russian um, transport ship in our Simonstown Naval Harbor um, uh, secretly. And uh, it's believed that this is sanctions busting and that South Africa is supplying Russia with weapons of war. And some people said, but what weapons could South Africa possibly have to offer? Well, amongst other things, our G5s and G6s, the 155mm howitzer, was the best in the world to such an extent that Saddam Hussein's Iraqi forces bought ours and Americans had to buy from Armscore 
155 millimeters as well because they had no better howitzers to counteract the Iraqi howitzers. And it's quite possible, considering how much the Russians rely on artillery, that they are purchasing some of South Africa's artillery systems, which the old South Africa produced, but of course we'd still have stockpiles. So uh, right now, um, when we're talking about munitions, it's all very well to have something that works. But how well does it work under the worst circumstances and in heat and cold and rain and with damp and with everything else and with lots of dust and mud? We found, for example, the Russians would send their T-62s in Tangola. Well, T-62s were pretty pathetic because in Europe, T-62s needed a low profile um, for going over hills and so on. And so they had this very low profile. But you put a T-62 in Angola and the elephant grass was too high. And so they couldn't see where they were going. And so the commander would have to be putting his head out of the hatch to see where they were going and guide the driver below. And then he became a target for snipers. And that didn't particularly help them very well when their commander's getting shot regularly. So the T-62 proved to be pretty worthless in Angola. You know, it's all very well. It might be the most advanced weapon that you've got in Europe, but uh, how's it going to work in the mud and dust and the um, elephant grass of Africa? And uh, I'm sure that there's things to consider when you consider the um, very tropical forests and mountainous ranges of, uh, of Taiwan. So people who think that, well, China's got all this phenomenal amount of weaponry, yes, but how's it going to work in a war? How effective will it be? Is this going to operate effectively? Um, I've seen, we've sometimes had some of the best equipment, but it um, jams up in, with dust, and you've got all this dust and mud in Africa. And so, for example, you could have a really great Swiss rifle in uh, Africa, but it's not going to work very well because there's too much dust and dirt, and the Swiss weaponry is outstanding and precision, but it doesn't have a high tolerance for dust and dirt. It expects to be maintained very clean in an alpine environment, whereas the Soviet AK-47, you can throw it in the mud, you can bury it in mud, you can leave it in the river, dig it up a few weeks later, and it'll fire first shot and it'll keep going. And it can operate with a huge amount of mud and dirt. It's a peasant's weapon. So there are things like that you don't know till you've actually tested it in the field. And the Chinese army and navy and air force does not have the same field testing, battle hardiness. Uh, they have not got the same kind of combat reliability or battle tested technology and weapons. Whereas the amount of um, military technology that's been battle tested by the Americans and the Taiwanese and Japan even, um, is so superior. So when you uh, consider all of these things, a Chinese invasion is by no means uh, guaranteed to be successful. And uh, right now, it's obvious that the Chinese want to take Taiwan. They're committed to taking Taiwan. They're determined to mobilize against them. They could try a blockade. Now, a naval blockade... Um, could easily get retaliation from the United States and Japan who want to keep the um, South China Sea free for international trade, a lot of international trade, vast amount of traffic goes through these straits. So a, a naval blockade could find itself having a full um, American naval task force a carrier group going through to force it open and to keep it open, which could lead to a shooting war, of course. Now, how well would the US Navy do against uh, the Chinese Navy. Well, uh, Navy against Navy, the US Navy is, of course, vastly bigger, better, and, and more powerful. However, 
there's been a major change in weapon systems, and that is with the development of hypersonic missiles. And if China has some hypersonic missiles, which we formed they do, a hypersonic missile could come crashing into an aircraft carrier without any adequate response possible. So all the counter systems would be ineffective against a hypersonic missile. They just move too fast. Now, we know Russia's got hypersonic missiles. That certainly is a game changer. And if China's got some as well, that could definitely change if they're efficient and if they're effective and if they work and if they can hit their targets, uh, which, of course, we don't know yet because China doesn't have a battle-tested military. They haven't, the most recent war that China fought was back in 1979 against uh, Vietnam, and they lost. And the Vietnamese beat them. The Vietnamese were a battle-tested army, and the Chinese were not. And the Chinese tried to invade Vietnam, and they lost. In a matter of a few weeks, Vietnam had defeated them, and they had to flee in um, disgrace. So it's it's absolutely certain war with China is coming. What form it's going to take remains to be seen, and some of that's going to be their decision, and and who knows how irrationally they might behave. Uh, but they've got a lot to lose, and it won't always go their way, and it's highly unlikely that all the equipment's going to work uh, in the pressures of war and be as reliable and effective and accurate. Um, but on the other hand, they can inflict a huge amount of damage. The, mil- the U.S. military also, one needs to re- notice, has been degraded in recent years by not just the COVID cult and forcing everyone to get the COVID shot, the clot shot, undermining health, chasing out some of their best people with the LGBTQ um, critical race theory propaganda. And so uh, the demoralization of the U.S. military and the gutting of it, hollowing it out by chasing out some of their most principled patriots um, under both the Clinton and Obama and then now the Biden administrations, the U.S. military is probably weaker than it's ever been from the inside in terms of personnel. They might have great equipment and great technology, but um, the human factor has been seriously undermined with not just the morale, but you could also say the Chinese use of drugs to undermine America's young people is also causing huge havoc. So many people are drug addicts, and it's not just civilian population. A lot of the military are also drug addicts. And uh, there's a book out called Red Cocaine, showing how the Soviet Union and the Chinese Secret Service were heavily involved in drugging of America. But now we know that uh, the Chinese military intelligence has taken over the task of drugging America and Western Europe. So we can see that the moral battle is key. The psychological war fear is always ongoing. They're continuing to do industrial espionage and uh, lots of technology theft. Uh, But what they're doing with cyber attacks, organized crime, social turmoil, um, even on social media, you think TikTok and how they're spying on people effectively um, through even social media uh, platforms like TikTok. So China is working on total war or uh, unrestricted warfare, warfare by other means, and um, they are not beyond using pandemics and so on as weapons to destabilize a stronger enemy. We also need to remember that they have said openly, we are at war with the West, we are at war with America, and the whole population has been uh, prepared for this, that we are already at war with America and we are uh, seeking to destroy them in every means. They've got textbooks out how you've got to use pandemics and drugs and everything else like that to undermine uh, the West. And so plainly that is part of their strategy. 
uh, one needs to bear in mind that um, uh, they have an inferior society in terms of slaves do not fight as well as free people. And uh, Taiwan has free people, but not. And so Red China might have quite a phenomenal economy, but it's built on being a parasite of the West. It needs Western aid and trade, and it steals Western technology, but that doesn't necessarily mean it understands how to integrate and use it as well. So what we are facing right now is a very cunning enemy, a very evil enemy, um, and the West could well get a serious thrashing and a real rebuke because I don't know how well our uh, LGBT critical race theoried um, gender confused military is going to do against a disciplined army. But we have a lot more confidence in the Taiwanese army. The Republic of China, Free China, uh, has a phenomenal standard. And uh, I think they're one of the most incredible militaries in the world. That was our view during the border war when we did some joint operations with the Taiwanese forces. And we think Republic of China is superior. And I would say, while we don't have too much confidence in the manpower that the US military is going to bring to this, the technology is great. But the, the if the technology is made available to the Taiwanese, the Taiwanese are not only motivated and determined, uh, but they are a very resourceful people. And uh, I would say that any attempt to invade Republic of China, Taiwan is going to fail. And uh, the Republic of China is going to uh, maul the Chinese military. I don't think the Red Chinese have the capabilities to do all that they claim they're going to do. Uh, big parades is one thing, but uh, how you perform on the battlefield is completely another and then bear in mind that uh, even a great power like America did not do too well against the Taliban and the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. And in fact, uh, they suffered some pretty serious reverses, even in the invasions of Iraq. So one cannot um, assume that a superpower is going to always win just because they're more numerous and more powerful. And remember, the United States of America did fail against uh, Vietnam, ultimately, and China has also failed against Vietnam. Vietnam military beat the Red Chinese Army uh, very famously in 1979. And it's highly unlikely um, that uh, they would be able to stand against the Taiwanese on a toe-to-toe -to -toe, uh, battle. But um, what China's got on their side is not um, only the military. What they've got is a lot of traitors in the West. Bear in mind, they basically own the Democratic Party of the United States. They own the White House. And then there's Bill Gates and Jeffrey Epstein and Co's uh, long ties with China. Uh, the New World Order loves Red China. And we've got uh, people like, uh, it's, it's not just um, the uh, World Economic Forum, but uh, Klaus Schwab and his whole globalist crowd love Red China. And they're talking about a globalist New World Order with China as a link pin, where China is a key part of this new one world government, this globalist government. And so we know that there's a lot of traitors in the West who would like Red China to succeed and who are not beyond betraying a free, prosperous country like uh, Republic of China, Taiwan. And uh, just as they betrayed Rhodesia and South Africa, you can imagine that the West would be willing to betray free China. So we trust free China is going to be resilient and also hope that other Asian powers like Japan and South Korea and the Philippines 
recognise the importance of standing with Taiwan. I don't expect Australians or New Zealanders to do much to help Taiwan, even though contractually they're meant to be allies. Uh, but um, uh, it would be an in interest to, of course, but I think that New Zealand and Australia and their present governments would probably betray Taiwan. But it's possible that Japan and the Philippines, even Singapore, would stand with Taiwan, and that may be enough. So those are just some of my views and some of what I've been able to gauge looking at the different uh, security reports and predictions. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. Fascinating information. Um, and before we go, could you please let the audience know where they can find your work and how they can contact you? Yes, my personal email is peter, P-E-T-E-R, at frontline, F-R-O-N-T-L-I-N-E, dot O-R-G dot Z-A. Peter at frontline.org.za is my email. Our website's www.frontlinemissionsa.org, S-A short for South Africa. So frontlinemissionsa.org, frontlinemissionsa, one word. And uh, you'll also find us on Facebook, Frontline Fellowship, um, and myself, Peter Hammond, you, you can find social media as well. Thank you, Thank Andrew. You. Thank you so much, Peter. Okay, folks, that wraps up our show today, entitled The Real Story Behind the Coming War with China. I want to thank Peter so much for joining us today. Peter will be back with us at the same time next week. I will, of course, be back with you tomorrow. But until then, thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day and bye.